see all of you well. It's also great to see people here for the first time. It's great to see some new faces here. I want to extend a special welcome to you. My name is Troy. I'm one of the ministers here. And it's a great privilege to be with you and have you here to share in God's word with us. So we're going to have a look at Mark chapter 9. So please have that open and also your sermon outline that I'll be referring to as we go along. Let's pray again. God, our Father, we thank you for the great image of the Lord Jesus that you give us in this passage. Thank you that it shows us who he is and what he does. We pray that you'd help us to wrestle with it and to respond to it with faith and repentance and with following the Lord Jesus. Amen. To kick us off, I want us to play a game of Who Am I? So have a think about if you can guess who each of these people are. We'll play three rounds, and if you can guess who it is, then you whack your hand up. And whoever gets up their hand up first is the clear winner, obviously. Who am I? I am female. I was born in 1920, and I passed away in 1997. I, whoa, someone's got it already. I am, Rome, I am a Roman Catholic nun. I am of Albanian ethnicity and Indian citizenship. I founded the Missionaries of Charity in Calcutta. Don't you shout it out, just stick your hand up. For over 45 years, I devoted myself to caring for the sick and the poor. I won a Nobel Peace Prize. I'm extremely famous. People love to quote me, and I'm known as a mother. Who is it? Mother Teresa. Well done. Good job. Okay, how about another one? Who am I? I'm male. I'm currently living. I'm a Christian. I have a wife and three children and one dog. I live in Sydney, Australia. I have a love for rugby league and cricket and sport in general. I'm not as quoted as Mother Teresa. My initials are PC and I'm well known to many of you and I'm in this room. Who is it? Phil Colgan, our senior minister. Okay, number three. Who am I? I'm male. I'm from the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. I was given dreams by God. I was a bit of a show-off in my younger years, and so I was sold into slavery and thrown into prison before becoming the most powerful man in the world. I am one of the 12 sons of Israel. I have an amazing Technicolor dream coat. (laughs) I've recently been studied by St. George North Anglican Church. Who am I? Joseph. Joseph from the book of Genesis. Who doesn't love a good game of who am I? Well, as I just mentioned, we have recently studied the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis, and we finished that last week. But today we get back into the book of Mark, Mark's gospel, which we were looking at earlier this year, and so now we come back partway through. We're going to meet our amazing Lord again, week in and week out, all the way up to Easter, actually, and continue to ask that question, what amazes us about Jesus? So today we pick up partway through the story, so we need to catch up with what happened in the previous chapter. I want you to cast your mind back to Sunday the 13th of September. That was the last time that we looked at Mark. We looked at Mark chapter 8. And what did we see there? We saw Jesus playing a game of who am I? As he walked down the road with his disciples, he played a game of who am I? He said, who do people say that I am? After they give some answers, Jesus said, okay, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And being the keen bean that Peter is, he speaks up. 
You are the Messiah. You are God's promised king from the Old Testament. The one who will save God's people and rule and reign over them. And Jesus says, yes, correct. But what kind of Messiah am I? Have a look at Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It's on your outline there. Jesus says, this is the kind of king that I am. This is my mission and purpose. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed and rise after three days. Jesus says, I am the Messiah who must suffer, who must die for the sins of the world and rise again to rule over all. I am the king who lays down his life for his people, who comes to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom. That is who I am. And then Mark tells us that six days later, straight after that event, we get this passage in Mark 9. And we see Jesus. He continues to play a game of who am I? So grab your Bible and let's have a look and see who Jesus really is. Have a look at verse 2. In verse 2, Jesus takes three of his closest disciples, his inner circle, up a mountain. Now, why is that little detail there important? Why does he take them up a mountain? Why is that important? Well, in the Old Testament, lots of things happened up on tops of mountains. Lots of mountaintop experiences happened, funnily enough, on top of mountains. Think about God giving the law of Moses to Moses on Mount Sinai. Or think of Elijah speaking to God in the still, small voice on the same mountain. Well, think about Elijah when he was on Mount Carmel and he called down fire from God that burnt up the waterlogged offering. He showed up Baal to be a false god. Amazing things happen on the tops of mountains. So for some of Mark's readers who would have been reading this, they would have said, what's going to happen up this mountain? And a sense of anticipation would have grown. And at first, it doesn't seem very eventful. Verse 2 says they go up. Why? To be alone. That's a bit of an anticlimax. Luke's gospel adds that they were praying. And this is what we see Jesus doing all over the gospels. He goes up mountains alone or with just a few to pray or to teach his disciples. But that's really not as crazy as the mountaintop experiences of the Old Testament. But this time... Something more, than, something more than prayer happens, as good as that is. This time it is one of those mountaintop experiences. This passage is often called the transfiguration because Jesus' appearance is transformed beyond anything that these men have ever seen in all of their lives. Have a look at the end of verse 2. He was transformed in front of them and his clothes became dazzling extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Don't you love the way the Bible describes things sometimes? Dazzling clothes, as white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. It's a good word, isn't it? Launderer. Do we have any launderers here? Hopefully no money launderers. I'm talking about clothes launderers. There might not be any professional dry cleaners or anything like that here, but Many of us here are home launderers, and if you're not, you should not let your parents do all your washing. We home launderers, 
we know that it's basically impossible to keep white clothes white, right? Sometimes we need a professional to do the job. But here, Mark tells us that no professional on earth could make clothes as white as the appearance of Jesus here in this passage. Now, as trivial as laundry is, the point here is incredibly significant. In the Bible, whenever there is the appearance of white, shining brightness, it means that that person is shining with the presence and glory of God. God is so holy and so glorious that when people come into contact with him, they shine with bright light. And this only happens a few times across the whole Bible to a few specially chosen people. Jesus is one of them. Now, not only does Jesus' appearance change himself, but two of the greatest men of the Old Testament appear, Moses and Elijah. Moses, the great leader of God's people who took God's people out of Egypt, the one whom God gave his law to. And Elijah, the great and bold prophet who spoke the truth and God's words to unfaithful Israel. And in this crazy situation, King Bean Peter, he's so overwhelmed and amazed and afraid that he speaks up. I don't know how he knows that it's Moses and Elijah, but he says, Rabbi, let's build a tabernacle or a tent for each one of you. Maybe he's just spouting nonsense and that's the first thing that came into his head. Or maybe, this is what I think, he's actually recognized that this is a very significant event. He's realized this is a special moment and he wants to recognize that by doing something special for these men. But then Peter doesn't get an answer to his keen request because something even more incredible happens. God the Father turns up in a thick cloud. God the Father comes and speaks. Have a look at verse 7. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Now this has to be one of the most significant and out there moments in all of Jesus' life. The only other time that God speaks audibly in this way is at Jesus' baptism. This is a powerful rooftop, sorry, mountaintop experience. But what does it all mean? What's the significance of all these crazy events and the appearing of these men? Well, remember, we're playing a game of who am I? And so we need to put the clues together to see who is Jesus saying he is. We need to see these events and what they show us about who Jesus really is. Well, let's take God's words first. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God's beloved son. What does it mean that Jesus is God's son? In the ancient world, it was often thought by many cultures that the king of a nation was the son of a god or a god themselves. And whilst the nation of Israel, they didn't literally think of their kings as gods, God still decided to give that title to the kings of Israel, to King David and all those after him. And so that's why we read in Psalm 2 earlier this coronation psalm, a psalm that was sung when a king was crowned. 
And that's why we get these words in Psalms 2, verse 7. Have a look there on your outline. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, that's the new king, you are my son. Today I've become your father. When a king of Israel was crowned, he became God's son, God's representative of justice and peace and righteousness on the earth. But over time, as Israel's kings failed and sinned and died, Israel began to look forward to the promised true son of God, the one descendant of David who would reign over Israel and the world forever. And so that's what God is declaring. That's what Peter declares in the previous chapter. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the son of David. And that's what God is declaring here. This is my son, Israel's king. But as we piece the clues together, we can see that actually more is going on. The fact that Jesus shines with the glory of God and a cloud comes with God's presence. The fact that he is called God's beloved son, or in other places, his only begotten son, the one and only son of God. It points us beyond thinking that Jesus is just a human king. It shows us that Jesus is more than the Son of God, the Messiah. He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. And this is what we celebrate and will be celebrating at Christmas time that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. This is what our carols are about. You know the one, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. And here in this passage, we get this glimpse of this very truth. Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Messiah, who turns out to be God the Son. God become human and walking amongst us. So you can understand why God the Father declares straight after this, listen to him. If this is the Messiah, if this is God in the flesh, then he is worth listening to. But there's another reason that the Father uses these words. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 18. Have a look there on your outline. This is Moses speaking to Israel about the future after he's gone. Moses says, The Lord your God will raise, up a, will raise up a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. God promised that he would provide his people with prophets, with people who would bring God's word to his people. And there were many prophets throughout the Old Testament. But again, Israel kept looking forward to a prophet, to one true great prophet. And this is why Moses and Elijah appear, two great prophets of the Old Testament, and why they disappear and Jesus is left standing alone as the prophet, as the prophet that Moses spoke about, about the prophet greater and after the man Elijah. Here is the fulfillment of the law and all the words of the prophets Jesus, the one true prophet, 
Not just a prophet, but the prophet to end them all. The one who gives full and final revelation of who God is and what he has done. So God says, you must listen to him. Moses and Elijah are gone. Listen to Jesus now. So when we play Who Am I with Jesus in this passage, we get to see this really cool stuff about who he is. He is God in the flesh. He is the promised Messiah. He is the great prophet. The fulfillment of all of God's promises and all of Israel's hope. We see the Father declaring and giving his seal of approval on this, Jesus his Son. This is truly one of those mountaintop experiences especially for these disciples who were scared out of their wits. But all good things come to an end, and so, once everything's over, Jesus and the three disciples come down. They come down from the mountain, and as they go, they talk and ask more questions, and we get a bit more insight into who Jesus is. So have a look from verse 9. As they are coming down the mountain, Jesus commands them, don't tell anyone what you just saw until... I've risen from the dead. Why does Jesus tell them to be quiet? Why does he do this all throughout the Gospels? Well, remember, it's because he's on a mission. He knows that his mission is to go to the cross, to go to his death for people. And so he doesn't want anything to divert him from that path. He doesn't want people to take him out of the game too early. Or he doesn't want people to come and make him king by a revolution. No, instead... He wants to show us more of who he is. Instead of giving us clues to Jesus being this powerful, conquering Messiah who makes war, instead we get clues that Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus declares and predicts his death before it happens because he's showing us what kind of Messiah he is. The one who suffers, written about in the book of Isaiah. He says, when Isaiah wrote 800 years ago, this is me. Have a listen to what Isaiah says about him. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Jesus says, I am that person. I am the Messiah who doesn't come just to rule and reign, but to serve, to give my life for the sin of all people. And so, once again, the disciples show themselves to be a little bit thick. They say, they don't know what he's getting at, and so they say in verse 10, what does he mean, rise from the dead? And so then they decide to ask him some more questions in verse 11. And they ask him about Elijah. They say, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Which I think shows that even though they're a bit slow to understand, they're actually thinking about what's going on. They've just heard Jesus declared, you are the Messiah. They've just heard God the Father say, this is my son. They've just seen Elijah appear before them. And they're thinking about the implications. What does all this mean? They've heard the scribes, some of the Jewish leaders say that before the Messiah comes, Elijah must come first, a second time. And they get that 
from a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4. So have a look there on the outline. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It was God's final word to the nation of Israel before Jesus came, 300 years earlier. Malachi chapter 4, he says this, Look, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. God promised that Elijah would come. He would somehow return and call Israel back to obedience, back to right relationships again, just like Elijah did the first time. So the disciples are like, well, if you're the Messiah, Jesus, where's Elijah? Doesn't he come before you? So how does Jesus respond? Have a look at verse 12. Elijah does come first and restores everything. First of all, Jesus confirms what Malachi and the disciples are saying. Elijah comes first and he restores Israel back to God and back to each other. But then Jesus, he asks this rhetorical question to get them thinking. He says in verse 12, How then is it written about the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah really has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. Jesus says, Elijah has come. It was John the Baptist. He was the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's the one who proclaimed to Israel, like Elijah, turn back to God. He was the one who wore the same clothes and lived in the wilderness like old Elijah. But what happened to him? They did to him whatever they pleased. King Herod had him imprisoned and beheaded because of his words and actions. So Jesus is trying to challenge his disciples and get them to think. He's drawing a comparison. Yes, Elijah has come, but he was treated with contempt and killed. Just as the Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer and be treated with contempt and killed. Jesus says, who am I yet again? He's trying to get his disciples to understand that he is the Messiah who has come to die. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah, the one who has come to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, Jesus says, I am the Messiah. Yes, Jesus says, I am the one great prophet. Yes, Jesus says, I am even God in the flesh. But I am also the suffering servant of Isaiah. I am also the king who has come to serve and to give my life for my people. What an amazing Lord that we serve. Are you amazed by him? Are you struck again and thankful that Jesus is that king who died for your sin? That should be our first response to the amazing Lord. Amazement and thanks. But there's another response in this passage that we cannot ignore. We saw it earlier. How should we respond to the Son of God, to the Messiah, to the prophet, to the suffering servant? Look at the response God calls for in verse 7. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. 
if Jesus really is who he says he is, if he really is all of these things, then the only right response to him is to listen to him. Later on in Deuteronomy 18 that we read before, God says this about our Lord. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I've commanded him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to him, to my words that he speaks in my name. God has raised up Jesus. God has put his words in Jesus' mouth. Jesus is the one who speaks God's words in God's name. And God will hold accountable every person who does not listen to Jesus. We must listen to Jesus, God's great prophet, God's king. And so the question that we all have to ask is, am I listening? Am I listening to the one that God has chosen? Are you listening? Not just hearing, but listening. Hearing and investigating and wrestling and believing in and obeying. That's what it means to listen, to hear and to act upon. The first way we see that we are to listen to Jesus is to believe and to trust in him. To hear his call to repent and believe, to turn away from our sin and our rejection of him and turn to him for forgiveness and eternal life. That's what he commands. And if you haven't done that, then I plead with you, listen to Jesus. Hear his call to come to him and act on that call. But if you have done that first step of listening to Jesus, as I know many of you have and I have too, then we need to ask ourselves daily, are we listening to our Lord? Or have we closed our ears to his voice? Do we hunger for his words? Do we long to hear them? Do we find joy in wrestling with them together? Do they fill our hearts and overflow from our mouths to everyone? And do we strive to obey him? Do we strive to live out his words? Because that is what it means to listen to Jesus. Are there some words of Jesus that you struggle to listen to and obey? Those ones that you know he says, but you struggle to accept and live out? Or are there whole areas of your life where you have stopped listening to him? Brothers and sisters, God will hold to account everyone who does not listen to his son, the Lord Jesus. So let's resolve to listen to him, to place his words at the center of our lives, to hear them, understand them, and live them out obediently. Why? Because of who he is. Because he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Prophet, God in the flesh, and the suffering servant who has laid down his life for us. Our amazing Lord. Let's pray. God our Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus, that you sent him to be God among us.
to be the one who is to rule over all people in all time, to be the prophet who speaks your words fully and finally, to be the suffering servant who would lay down his life and take on the wrath that we deserved in our place and for our sin. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to listen to you, to make your words the center of our lives, and so to live them out in obedience to you. And we pray in your name. Amen.